0: Around the World in Eighty Days, by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 33, in which Phileas Fogg shows himself equal, The occasion. An hour after, the Henrietta passed the lighthouse which marks the entrance of the Hudson, turned the point of Sandy Hook, and put to sea. During the day, she skirted Long Island, passed Fire Island, and directed her course rapidly eastward. At noon the next day, a man mounted the bridge to ascertain the vessel's position. It might be thought that this was Captain Speedy, not the least in the world. It was Phileas Fogg, Esquire. As for Captain Speedy, he was shut up in his cabin under lock and key, and was uttering loud cries which signified an anger at once pardonable and excessive what had happened was very simple phileas fogg wished to go to liverpool but the captain would not carry him there then phileas fogg had taken passage for bordeaux and During the thirty hours he had been on board, had so shrewdly managed with his banknotes that the sailors and stokers, who were only an occasional crew, and were not on the best terms with the captain, went over to him in a body. This was why Phileas Fogg was in command instead of Captain Speedy why the captain was a prisoner in his cabin, and why, in short, the Henrietta was directing her course towards Liverpool. The Henrietta was directing her course towards Liverpool. It was very clear to see Mr. Fogg manage the craft that he had been a sailor, How the adventure ended will be seen anon. Uda was anxious, though she said nothing. As for Passepartout, he thought Mr. Fogg's manoeuvre simply glorious. The captain had said, between eleven and twelve knots, and the Henrietta confirmed his prediction. If, then, for there were ifs still, the sea did not become too boisterous, if the wind did not veer round to the east, if no accident happened to the boat or its machinery, the Henrietta might cross three thousand miles from New York to Liverpool in the nine days, between the 12th on the 21st of December. It is true that, once arrived, the affair on board the Henrietta, added to that of the Bank of England, might create more difficulties for Mr. Fogg than he imagined or could desire. During the first days, they went along smoothly enough, the sea was not very unproprietous. The wind seemed stationary in the northeast. The sails were hoisted, and the Henrietta ploughed across the waves like a real transatlantic steamer. Pasper too was delighted. His master's last exploit, the consequences of which he ignored enchanted him. Never had the crew seen so jolly and dexterous a fellow. He formed warm friendships with the sailors and amazed them with his acrobatic feats. He thought they managed the vessel like gentlemen and the stokers fired up like heroes. His loquacious good humor infected everyone. He had forgotten the past, its vexations and delays. He only thought of the end, so nearly accomplished, and sometimes he boiled over with impatience, as if heated by the furnaces of the Henrietta. Often also, The worthy fellow revolved around Fix, looking at him with a keen, distrustful eye. But he did not speak to him, for their old intimacy no longer existed. Fix, it must be confessed, understood nothing of what was going on. The conquest of the Henrietta, the bribery of the crew... Fog managing the boat like a skilled seaman, amazed and confused him. He did not know what to think, for, after all, a man who began by stealing 55,000 pounds might end by stealing a vessel, and Fix was not unnaturally inclined to conclude that the Henrietta under Fogg's command, was not going to Liverpool at all, but to some part of the world where the robber, now turned into a pirate, would quietly put himself in safety. The conjecture was at least a plausible one, and the detective had began to seriously regret that he had embarked on the affair As for Captain Speedy, he continued to howl and growl in his cabin, and Passepartout, whose duty it was to carry him his meals, courageous as he was, took the greatest precautions. Mr. Fogg did not seem even to know that there was a captain on board. On the 13th, They passed the edge of the banks of Newfoundland, a dangerous locality during the winter especially. There are frequent fogs and heavy gales of wind. Ever since the evening before, the barometer, suddenly falling, had indicated an approaching change in the atmosphere, and during the night... The temperature varied, the cold became sharper, and the wind veered to the southeast. This was a misfortune. Mr. Fogg, in order not to deviate from his course, furled his sails and increased the force of the steam, but the vessel's speed slackened owing to the state of the sea the long waves of which broke against the stern. She pitched violently, and this retarded her progress. The breeze, little by little, swelled into a tempest, and it was to be feared that the Henrietta might not be able to maintain herself upright on the waves. Passepartout's visage darkened with the skies, and for two days the poor fellow experienced constant fright. But Phileas Fogg was a bold mariner, and knew how to maintain headway against the sea, and he kept on his course without decreasing his steam. The Henrietta when she could not rise upon the waves, crossed them, swamping her deck, but passing safely. Sometimes the screw rose out of the water, beating its protruding end, when a mountain of water raised the stern above the waves, but the craft always kept straight ahead. The wind, however, did not grow as boisterous as might have been feared. It was not one of those tempests which burst and rush on with speed of ninety miles an hour. It continued fresh, but, unhappily, it remained obstinately in the southeast, rendering the sails useless. The 16th of December was the 75th day since Phileas Fogg's departure from London, and the Henrietta had not yet been seriously delayed. Half of the voyage was almost accomplished, and the worst localities had been passed. In summer, success would have been well nigh certain. In winter, they were at the mercy of the bad season. Paspatou said nothing, but he cherished hope in secret and comforted himself with the reflection that, if the wind failed them, they might still count on the steam. On this day, the engineer came on deck, went up to Phileas Fogg, and began to speak earnestly with him. Without knowing why it was a presentment, perhaps Passepartout became vaguely uneasy. He would have given one of his ears to hear with the other what the engineer was saying. He finally managed to catch a few words, and was sure he heard his master say, "'You are certain of what you are telling me?' "'Certain, sir,' replied the engineer. "'You remember that, since we started, we have kept up hot fires in all of our furnaces, "'and though we had coal enough to go on short steam from New York to Bordeaux,' We wouldn't have enough to go with all steam from New York to Liverpool. I will consider, replied Mr. Fogg. Passepartout understood it all. He was seized with mortal anxiety. The coal was giving out. Ah, if my master can get over that, muttered he. He'll be a famous man. He could not help imparting to Fix what he had overheard. Then you believe that we really are going to Liverpool? Of course. Ass, replied the detective, shrugging his shoulders and turning on his heel. Paspartout was on the point of vigorously resenting the epithet, the reason of which he could not for the life of him comprehend, but he reflected that the unfortunate fix was probably very much disappointed and humiliated in his self-esteem after having so awkwardly followed a false scent around the world. And refrained. And now, what course would Phileas Fogg adopt? It was difficult to imagine. Nevertheless, he seemed to have decided upon one, for that evening he sent for the engineer and said to him, Feed all the fires until the coal is exhausted. A few moments after, the funnel of the Henrietta vomited forth torrents of smoke. The vessel continued to proceed with all steam on, but on the 18th, the engineer, as he had predicted, announced that the coal would give out in the course of a day. Do not let the fires go down replied Mr. Fogg. Keep them up to the last. Let the valves be filled. Towards noon, Phileas Fogg, having ascertained their position, called Passepartout and ordered him to go for Captain Speedy. It was as if the honest fellow had been commanded to unchain a tiger He went to the poop, saying to himself, He will be like a madman. In a few moments, with cries and oath, a bomb appeared on the poop deck. The bomb was Captain Speedy. It was clear that he was on the point of bursting. Where are we? were the first words his anger permitted him to utter. Had the poor man been an apoplectic, he could have never recovered from his paroxysm of wrath. Where are we? he repeated with a purple face. 707 miles from Liverpool, replied Mr. Fogg with an imperturbable calmness. "'Pirate!' cried Captain Speedy. "'I have sent for you, sir. Pickaroon." "'Sir,' continued Mr. Fogg, "'to ask you to sell me your vessel. "'No, by all the devils, no. "'But I shall be obliged to burn her. "'Burn the Henrietta?' "'Yes,' At least the upper part of her, the coal has given out. Burn my vessel, cried Captain Speedy, who could scarcely pronounce the words. A vessel worth fifty thousand dollars? Here are sixty thousand, replied Phileas Fogg, handing the captain a roll of bank bills. This had a prodigious effect on Andrew Speedy. An American can scarcely remain unmoved at the sight of sixty thousand dollars. The captain forgot in an instant his anger, his imprisonment, and all his grudges against his passenger. The Henrietta was twenty years old. It was a great bargain. The bomb would not go off after all. Mr. Fogg had taken away the match. And I shall still have the iron hull, said the captain in a softer tone. The iron hull and the engine, is it agreed? Agreed. And Andrew Speedy, seizing the banknotes, counted them And consigned them to his pocket. During this colloquy, Passepartout was as white as a sheet, and Fix seemed on the point of having an apoplectic fit. Nearly twenty thousand pounds had been expended, and Fogg left the hull and engine to the captain, that is, near the whole value of the craft. It was true, however, that £50,000 had been stolen from the bank. When Andrew Speedy had pocketed the money, Mr. Fogg said to him, "'Don't let this astonish you, sir. You must know that I shall lose £20,000 unless I arrive in London.' "'by a quarter before nine on the evening of the 21st of December. "'I missed the steamer at New York, "'and as he refused to take me to Liverpool. "'And I did well,' cried Andrew Speedy, "'for I have gained at least $40,000 by it,' he added more sedately. "'Do you know one thing, Captain?' Fog, Captain Fogg, you've got something of a Yankee about you. And, having paid his passenger what he considered a high compliment, he was going away when Mr. Fogg said, The vessel belongs to me. Certainly, from the keel to the truck of the mast, all the wood that is. Very well, have the interior seats, bunks, and frames pulled down and burn them. It was necessary to have dry wood to keep the steam up to the adequate pressure, and on that day the poop, cabins, bunks, and the spare deck were sacrificed. On the next day, the 19th of December, the masts, rafts, and spars were burned. The crew worked lustily, keeping up the fires. Passepartout hewed, cut, and sawed away with all his might. There was a perfect rage of demolition. The railings, fittings, the great part of the deck and the top sides disappeared on the twentieth, and the Henrietta was now only a flat hulk. But on this day, they sighted the Irish coast and fast net light. By ten in the evening, they were passing Queenstown. Phileas Fogg had only twenty-four hours more In which to get to London, that length of time was necessary to reach Liverpool, with all steam on. And the steam was about to give out altogether. Sir, said Captain Speedy, who was now deeply interested in Mr. Fogg's project, I really commiserate you. Everything is against you. We are only opposite Queenstown. Ah, said Mr. Fogg. Is that place where we see the lights, Queenstown? Yes. Can we enter the harbour? Not under three hours, only at high tide. Stay, replied Mr. Fogg calmly, without betraying in his features that by a supreme inspiration, he was about to attempt once more to conquer ill fortune. Queenstown is the Irish port at which the transatlantic steamer stops to put off the mails. These mails are carried to Dublin by express trains, always held in readiness to start, from Dublin They are sent on to Liverpool by the most rapid boats, and thus gain twelve hours on the Atlantic steamers. Phileas Fogg counted on gaining twelve hours in the same way. Instead of arriving at Liverpool the next evening by the Henrietta, he would be there by noon and would therefore have time to reach London before a quarter before nine in the evening. The Henrietta entered Queenstown Harbour at one o'clock in the morning, it then being high tide, and Phileas Fogg, after being grasped heartily by the hand by Captain Speedy, left that gentleman on the levelled hulk of his craft, which was still worth half what he had sold it for. The party went on shore at once. Fix was greatly tempted to arrest Mr. Fogg on the spot, but he did not. Why? What struggle was going on within him? Had he changed his mind about his man? Did he understand that he had made a grave mistake? He did not, however, abandon Mr. Fogg. They all got upon the train, which was ready to start, at half-past one, at dawn of the day they were in Dublin, and they lost no time in embarking on the steamer, which, disdaining to rise upon the waves, invariably cut through them. Phileas Fogg at last disembarked on the Liverpool Quay at twenty minutes before twelve, the twenty-first of September. He was only six hours' distance from London, but at this moment, Fix came up, put his hand upon Mr. Fogg's shoulder, and, showing his warrant, said you are really Phileas Fogg I am I arrest you in the Queen's name chapter 34 in which Phileas Fogg at last reaches London Phileas Fogg was in prison he had been shut up in the custom house and he was to be transferred to London the next day. Passepartout, when he saw his master arrested, would have fallen upon fix had he not been held back by some policemen. Uda was thunderstruck at the suddenness of an event which she could not understand. Passepartout explained to her, how it was that the honest and courageous Fogg was arrested as a robber. The young woman's heart revolted against so heinous a charge, and when she saw that she could attempt to do nothing to save her protector, she wept bitterly. As for Fix, he had arrested Mr. Fogg because it was his duty whether Mr. Fogg were guilty or not. The thought then struck Passepartout that he was the cause of this new misfortune. Had he not concealed Fix's errands from his master? When Fix revealed his true character and purpose, why had he not told Mr. Fogg? If the latter had been warned he would no doubt have given Fix proof of his innocence and satisfied him of his mistake. At least, Fix would not have continued his journey at the expense and on the heels of his master, only to arrest him the moment he set foot on English soil. Passepartout wept till he was blind and felt like blowing his brains out. Uda and he had remained, despite the cold, under the portico of the custom house. Neither wished to leave the place. Both were anxious to see Mr. Fogg again. That gentleman was really ruined, and that at the moment when he was about to attain his end, This arrest was fatal. Having arrived at Liverpool at twenty minutes before twelve on the twenty-first of December, he had till quarter before nine that evening to reach the Reform Club, that is, nine hours and a quarter. The journey from Liverpool to London was six hours. If anyone at this moment had entered the custom house, he would have found Mr. Fogg seated, motionless, calm, and without apparent anger, upon a wooden bench. He was not, it is true, resigned, but this last blow failed to force him into an outward betrayal of any emotion. Was he being devoured by one of those secret rages, all the more terrible because contained, and which only burst forth with an irresistible force at the last moment? No one could tell. There he sat, calmly waiting. For what? Did he still cherish hope? Did he still believe now that the door of his prison was closed upon him, that he would succeed. However that may have been, Mr. Fogg carefully put his watch upon the table and observed its advancing hands. Not a word escaped his lips, but his look was singularly set and stern. The situation, in any event... Was a terrible one, and might be thus stated. If Phileas Fogg was honest, he was ruined. If he was a knave, he was caught. Did escape occur to him? Did he examine to see if there were any predictable outlets from his prison? Did he think of escaping from it? Possibly. For once he walked slowly around the room, but the door was locked and the window heavily barred with iron rods. He sat down again and drew his journal from his pocket. On the line where these words were written, 21st December, Saturday, Liverpool, he added, 80th day, 11.40 a.m., and waited. The custom house clock struck one. Mr. Fogg observed that his watch was two hours too fast. Two hours. Admitting that he was at this moment taking an express train, he could reach London and the Reform Club by a quarter before 9 p.m., his forehead slightly wrinkled. At thirty-three minutes past two, he heard a singular noise outside, then a hasty opening of doors. Passepartout's voice was audible, and immediately after that to fix. Phileas Fogg's eyes brightened for an instant. The door swung open, And he saw Paspertu, Uda, and Fix, who hurried towards him. Fix was out of breath, and his hair was in disorder. He could not speak. Sir, he stammered, Sir, forgive me. Most unfortunate resemblance. Robber arrested three days ago. You are free. Phileas Fogg was free. He walked to the detective, looked him steadily in the face, and with the only rapid motion he had ever made in his life, or which he would ever make, drew back his arm, and with the precision of a machine, knocked Fix down. Well hit, cried Passepartout. Parbleu! bleu. That's what you might call a good application of English fists. Fix, who found himself on the floor, did not utter a word. He had only received his desserts. Mr. Fogg, Uda, and Passepartout left the custom house without delay, got into a cab, and in a few moments descended at the station. Phileas Fogg asked if there was an express train about to leave for London. It was forty minutes past two. The express train had left thirty-five minutes before. Phileas Fogg then ordered a special train. There were several rapid locomotives on hand. But the railway arrangements did not permit the special train to leave until three o'clock. At that hour, Phileas Fogg, having stimulated the engineer by the offer of a generous reward, at last set out towards London with Uda and his faithful servant. It was necessary to make the journey in five hours and a half, and this would have been easy on a clear road throughout. But there were forced delays, and when Mr. Fogg stepped from the train at the terminus, all the clocks in London were striking ten minutes before nine. Having made the tour of the world... He was behind hand 5 minutes. He had lost the wager. Chapter 35 In which Phileas Fogg does not have to repeat his orders to Passepartout twice. The dwellers in the Savile Row would have been surprised the next day. If they had been told that Phileas Fogg had returned home, his doors and windows were still closed, no appearance of change was visible. After leaving the station, Mr. Fogg gave Passepartout instructions to purchase some provisions and quietly went to his domicile. He bore his misfortune with his habitual tranquility, ruined and by the blundering of the detective. After having steadily traversed that long journey, overcome a hundred obstacles, braved many dangers, and still found time to do some good on his way, to fail near the goal by a sudden event which he could not have foreseen, and again which was unarmed. It was terrible, but a few pounds were left of the large sum he had carried with him. Mr. Fogg's course, however, was fully decided upon. He knew what remained for him to do. A room in the house in Savile Row was set apart for Uda who was overwhelmed with grief at her protector's misfortune. From the words which Mr. Fogg dropped, she saw that he was meditating some serious projects. Knowing that Englishmen, governed by a fixed idea, sometimes resort to the desperate expedient of suicide, Passepartout kept a narrow watch upon his master, Though he carefully concealed the appearance of so doing. First of all, the worthy fellow had gone up to his room and had extinguished the gas burner, which had been burning for eighty days. He had found in the letter box a bill from the gas company, and he thought it more than time to put a stop to his expense. Which he had been doomed to bear. The night passed. Mr. Fogg went to bed. But did he sleep? Uda did not once close her eyes. Passepartout watched all night, like a faithful dog, at the master's door. Mr. Fogg called him in in the morning and told him to get Uda's breakfast and a cup of tea, and a chop for himself. He desired Uda to excuse him from breakfast and dinner, as his time would be absorbed all day in putting his affairs to rights. In the evening, he would ask permission to have a few moments' conversation with the young lady. too, having received his orders had nothing to do but obey them. He looked at his imperturbable master and could scarcely bring his mind to leave him. His heart was full and his conscience tortured by remorse, for he accused himself more bitterly than ever of being the cause of the irretrievable disaster. Yes, yes, If he had warned Mr. Fogg and had betrayed Fix's projects to him, his master would certainly not have given the detective passage to Liverpool, and then Passepartout could hold in no longer. My master, Mr. Fogg, he cried, why do you not curse me? It was my fault that... I blame no one, returned Phileas Fogg, with perfect calmness. Go. Passepartout left the room and went to find Uda, to whom he delivered his master's message. Madam, he added, I can do nothing myself, nothing. I have no influence over my master but you, perhaps. "'What influence could I have?' replied Duda. "'Mr. Fogg is influenced by no one. Has he ever understood that my gratitude to him is overflowing? Has he ever read my heart? My friend, he must not be left alone an instant.' You say he is going to speak with me this evening? Yes, madame, probably to arrange for your protection and comfort in England. We shall see, replied Uda, becoming suddenly pensive. Throughout this day, Sunday, the house in Savile Row was as if uninhabited, and Phileas Fogg for the first time since he had lived in that house, did not set out for his club when Westminster clock struck half-past eleven. Why should he present himself at the Reform Club? His friends no longer expected him there, as Phileas Fogg had not appeared in the saloon on the evening before, Saturday, the 21st of December, at a quarter before nine, he had lost his wager. It was not even necessary that he should go to his banker for the twenty thousand pounds, for his antagonists already had his check in their hands, and they had only to fill it out and send it to the barrings to have the amount transferred to their credit. Mr. Fogg, therefore had no reason for going out, and so he remained at home. He shut himself up in his room and busied himself putting his affairs in order. Passepartout continually ascended and descended the stairs. The hours were long for him. He listened at his master's door and looked through the keyhole, as if he had a perfect right to do so, and as if he feared that something terrible might happen at any moment. Sometimes he thought of Fix, but no longer in anger. Fix, like all the world, had been mistaken in Phileas Fogg, and had only done his duty in tracking and arresting him, while he... Passepartout. This thought haunted him, and he never ceased cursing his miserable folly. Finding himself too wretched to remain alone, he knocked at Tudor's door, went into her room, seated himself, without speaking, in a corner, and looked ruefully at the young woman. Uda was still pensive. About half past seven in the evening, Mr. Fogg sent to know if Uda would receive him, and in a few moments he found himself alone with her. Phileas Fogg took a chair and sat down near the fireplace opposite Uda. No emotion was visible on his face, Fogg returned was exactly the Fogg who had gone away. There was the same calm, the same impassibility. He sat several minutes without speaking, then bending his eyes on Ooda. Madame, said he, will you pardon me for bringing you to England? I, Mr. Fogg, replied OODA, checking the pulsations of her heart. Please let me finish, returned Mr. Fogg. When I decided to bring you far away from the country which was so unsafe for you, I was rich and counted on putting a portion of my fortune at your disposal. Then your existence would have been free "'and happy, but now I am ruined.' "'I know it, Mr. Fogg,' replied Uda, "'and I ask you in my turn. "'Will you forgive me for having followed you "'and, who knows, for having, perhaps, delayed you "'and thus contributed to your ruin?' "'Madame, you could not remain in India.' and your safety could only be assured by bringing you to such a distance that your persecutors could not take you. So, Mr. Fogg, resumed Uda, not content with rescuing me from a terrible death, you thought yourself bound to secure my comfort in a foreign land. Yes, madame but circumstances have been against me. Still, I beg to place the little I have left at your service. But what will become of you, Mr. Fogg? As for me, madame, replied the gentleman coldly, I have need of nothing. But how do you look upon the fate, sir, which awaits you? as I am in the habit of doing. At least, said Uda, want should not overtake a man like you. Your friends. I have no friends, madame. Your relatives. I have no longer any relatives. I pity you then, Mr. Fogg, for solitude is a sad thing. With no heart to which to confide your griefs. They say, though, that misery itself, shared by two sympathetic souls, may be borne with patience. They say so, Madame. Mr. Fogg, said Uda, rising and seizing his hand, do you wish at once a kinswoman and friend? Will you have me for your wife? Mr. Fogg, at this, rose in his turn. There was an unwonted light in his eyes, and a slight trembling of his lips. Uda looked into his face. The sincerity, rectitude, firmness, and sweetness of this soft glance of a noble woman who could dare all to save him to whom she owed all, at first astonished, then penetrated him. He shut his eyes for an instant, as if to avoid looking at her. When he opened them again, I love you, he said simply. Yes, by all that is holiest, I love you, and I am entirely yours. Ah! cried Uda, pressing his hand to her heart. Passepartout was summoned and appeared immediately. Mr. Fogg still held Uda's hand in his own. Passepartout understood, and his big, round face became as radiant as the tropical sun at its zenith. Mr. Fogg asked him if it was not too late to notify Reverend Samuel Wilson of Marlborne Parish that evening. Passepartout smiled his most genial smile and said, Never too late. It was five minutes past eight. Will it be for tomorrow, Monday? For tomorrow, Monday said Mr. Fogg, turning to Uda. Yes, for tomorrow, Monday, she replied. Paspatu hurried off as fast as his legs could carry him.